title of this message is Receiving the Least of These. Receiving the Least of These. Luke 9, 46 to 48. I'm going to be reading this in New American Standard, so it may not match the New King James that's on the screen. It says, An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. This is an argument among Jesus' disciples. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives him receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. You may be seated. So the disciples were arguing among themselves. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's the greatest preacher? Who's the greatest evangelist? Who did the greatest miracles? And Jesus takes a little boy, brings him close to himself, and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives my father who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this is the one who is great. The Amplified says, whoever welcomes me also welcomes him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, that is, the one who is genuinely humble, the one with a realistic self-view, he is the one who is truly great. The truly great people in God's perspective are those who have no confidence in their flesh. But they lean fully upon him. He's not talking about someone who just has a really low self-esteem and who's always criticizing themselves and saying how bad they are. He's talking about the way a child has no confidence in themselves. They have confidence in the adults around them. God wants us to have confidence in him. That's humility. It's not no confidence at all. It's no confidence in your flesh that you have anything to offer God. It's confidence in him. Some of you here think you have little to offer God. You often struggle with feeling small and insignificant. You think others in the church have so much more talent, maturity, and value. But Jesus says you are truly great in his eyes, in God's eyes. He doesn't see what you're not, but what you are in him, complete he sees the finished work of grace in you before it even comes to pass. And he urges others who think that they're great, they wrongly think they're great because they're comparing themselves to others. And they say, well, I have a better gift than them. I'm a little more mature than them. He urges others who are thinking wrongly to humble themselves and to receive you. That's what his disciples were doing. They were thinking wrongly. And Jesus said, no, you got this all wrong. To those of us to our shame who are more like the disciples arguing who's the greatest preacher, who's the greatest man or woman of God that we know, who's the greatest, that's wrong thinking, that's stinking thinking, get it out of your mind. If you see someone that's being used by God, they're anointed by God, they have a great teaching or preaching gift or they have a great serving gift or they're doing what seems like great things for God, give God the glory. It's because of Christ in them. It's not because of them. If it's truly anointed, it's because of Christ. Give God the glory. But we think wrong. We look at the, the gift and we look at the maturity and we look at the person. We say, oh, they're great. 
No, Jesus said the one who has no confidence in themselves, that's like a child. They're the one that's truly great. Throw out the idea that anyone has anything to offer from self to God besides sin. That's all we can offer God. Is our failures, it's our filthy rags, it's, it's our unrighteousness. That's the truth. The world says, oh, you're good, you're good, you got something to offer. God says, no, without me, there's no good in you. But when you come to me and believe in me, then I will put in place my goodness, my righteousness in you. And there will be good things that, that are of Christ that you can rejoice in and have confidence in. Philemon, Paul said to Philemon, that the, the sharing of your faith becomes effective by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you by Christ Jesus. See, there is good things in the saints of God. There is goodness to rejoice in, but it's rejoicing in him, in us. His life in us, his gifts in us, his strength in us, his maturing us. All the glory goes to him. All of us are paupers without his grace and his robe of righteousness. This is a neglected truth that few in the church see and practice. As the disciples missed this and needed to do this, so do we. Receiving the least of these is the heart of Jesus those who embrace the least esteem people in the world, they embrace Jesus. Jesus, listen, he keeps his distance from those who keep their distance from the least of these. Did you know that? If you're proud in your thinking and you're like, well, they're, they're not much of a person and they don't have much to offer and I don't have much time for them, guess what? As you distance yourself from them, you distance yourself from Jesus. And as you embrace them and move toward them with the love and heart of Christ, you move closer to Christ. You receive Jesus. Hallelujah. Some of you here today need to know that you're great in God's eyes because you think that you're nothing and you have nothing to offer. You're great in God's eyes. And some of you who think you're great because you're comparing things on a fleshly level need to come down, need to humble yourself. And realize that you're nothing without Christ and his goodness in you. Romans 15, 5 through 7. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, to have the same mind of Christ and to, be, to have a unity, to be like-minded because you're all thinking like Jesus. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's, this is talking about an incredible unity in the body of Christ. Why? Because everyone lays aside their pride and their opinions and, and what they think, and they take on the mind of Christ in humility. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore, receive one another, Receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Do you want to glorify God? You don't have to go to Zimbabwe and be a missionary. I mean, if God calls you there, then go and you'll glorify Christ there. But you want to glorify God? He says, here's one of the ways. By receiving one another in the body of Christ. That brings glory to God. Because you're displaying the heart and attitude of God. You're revealing it to your brother and your sister. 
Listen, do we seek the unity the early church had when there was 120 in the upper room before the Spirit was poured out in power at Pentecost? Listen, it starts with ridding ourselves of worldly thinking toward each other. Ranking each other based on talents and maturity or usefulness in the church. We are to be like-minded toward each other. To think of the least as truly great. How? Because God has received them and given them the glorious gift of Christ's righteousness. This is why they're great. Because they have all been received by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? We all have that same beautiful, perfect, flawless gift of righteousness. That garment that at the wedding supper of the Lamb you have to have to enter in. The man who didn't have it was cast out into outer darkness. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he takes away your ungodliness, your sin, your, your, all your shame of the past by the blood of the cross, and he imputes, he gives you the righteousness of himself. The perfect righteousness. That means that you, if you were born again today, you have the same righteousness as the greatest evangelist, the greatest preacher. In fact, you have the same righteousness that Paul had. At the end of his ministry, when he was martyred, you have the same righteousness to stand before God, to call on him, to pray, to worship him, to serve him. You have the same righteousness. And thus, when you recognize that and believe it, you're great in God's eyes. You're his child. You're received. Hallelujah. When we receive one another, we bring glory to God. We confirm God's heart toward those that are feeling less than. You ever feel less than? Less than so-and-so, less than them? When we receive each other, we confirm God's heart is not, you're less than, you're equal to, you're great, you're received. We declare when we receive one another, I believe you are received by God and I receive you just as Christ does. We're the body of Christ. We need to confirm the thoughts and heart of God to each other and we glorify God when we do that. My friend evangelist Adam Field put up a a little short clip of him preaching at Times Square Church in Manhattan, New York. 20 years ago, he was 17 years old. And unfortunately, there's no audio in in the video. It was the one time he was asked by Pastor David Wilkerson to preach at Times Square Church. But you can see by the clip that he's full of joy. As he's preaching, he's, he's jumping up and around, he's shouting, he's praising God, and you can see the choir behind him. It's a youthful choir. They're all probably college age. And you can see them. They are full of joy as he's preaching. And they're clapping and they're smiling, and then the, the, the camera pans over to, to David Wilkerson and Carter Conlon, and they, they're, they're, they stand up and they start clapping. You can just sense that the presence of God was there without any audio. And someone had asked Adam, aren't you nervous? Before he preached, aren't you nervous? You're 17, you're from Ireland. Aren't you nervous about standing in this great preacher's pulpit? He's been known to to take the mic from people if he has a guest preacher and they start preaching something that's false teaching. He's been known, if it was grievous, to just go up and say, okay, that's enough. I'm taking the mic from you. He says, aren't you nervous? What if you say something wrong? And Adam said, no, I'm not nervous. 
He said, because David Wilkerson receives me and I feel like preach, I'm preaching before my father. I'm preaching before my dad. He believes in me. He receives me. And you can see what you can see from the video, the boldness and the confidence that Adam had, not in himself, but in God. And there's an anointing. There's a power of the Holy Spirit in him. Why? Because someone believed in him. Someone received him. Acts 9, 26 says, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. This was shortly after his conversion from being a Christian persecutor to being a Christian himself. He had converted from arresting and, and bringing people to prison and to trial and even some to death. He had converted from that when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus to becoming an apostle of suffering for Jesus Christ. An apostle who would, who would risk his life and be beaten and stoned and left for dead. He was changed. But the church was like, this is, I don't know, it had only been maybe a few weeks or months and they heard about Saul who they had all been afraid of and terrorized by now that he's, that he's saved. And they didn't believe it. They said, no, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a big pill to swallow. It says they were afraid of him and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But there was a Barnabas. There was a Barnabas. You know that Barnabas, one of the apostles, you know that his, his name means son of encouragement? Oh, we need some sons of encouragement in the church of Jesus Christ. We need some sons of encouragement like Barnabas. And it says, it says this, but in verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had spoken to him and how that he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he, or Paul, was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. You see, it was Barnabas that took Paul and said, no, I believe he's real. I've seen Christ in him. Uh, he, I saw him preach and I, I've seen him preach boldly and I know that he's changed by grace. Guys, let's receive him. Peter, John, James, let's receive him. Do you see the power of receiving another believer? It says Paul was in the church and he went in and went out and, and then they dropped him down the wall in a basket when he was being persecuted. And Paul went on to become the greatest evangelist and missionary in Christian history. Imagine if the church had stayed in that position of saying, we don't receive him, we don't believe him, or he sinned too much, he, he killed too many, he killed my brother-in-law, that Christian, he, he put my mom in prison. Imagine if the church had disbelieved his conversion and failed to receive him by unforgiveness or doubt. Thank God they didn't do that. Thank God there was a Barnabas. Friend, I want to be a Barnabas to you. I want to see what Christ is doing in your life. And whether you're just born again or you've been saved 30 years and you're struggling, I want to believe God for what he's doing in your life. I want to receive you as Christ receives you, as the Father receives you. Praise God. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. You know this. You should. I preach it often. Therefore, from now on, Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't view each other with our faults and our failures and our sins and the things that God is still sanctifying. 
We don't see each other that way. We don't view each other through our talents or our maturity or our gifts. No, we don't see each other that way anymore. It says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means if he's born of the Spirit, he's born again. He's no longer just a child of Adam. He's a child of God. Did you know that, I just want to interject this here, that, that it's many people, and this has even creeped into the church, many people wrongly believe that everyone is a child of God. And my friend, that's just not true. Everyone is a child of Adam. Everyone is made in the image of God, but you don't become a child of God until you receive Jesus Christ by faith. That's when you're born again. That's when you become a child of God. And Paul says here, for those that are born again, those that are children of God, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's your position. In Christ, he sees you as complete. You've been washed at the cross when you first came to Christ. You've been washed. You've been set apart. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in one act of Jesus Christ. And now God sees you that way. He sees you positionally in Christ. He sees you not as the immature, floundering Christian, still wrestling with this sin, still trying to believe God. He sees you as complete in Christ. And he continues to work in you by the power of his spirit to sanctify you in your flesh to make your, your, your walk on earth look like your walk in heaven. To make your walk on earth look like your position in heaven. And he patiently does that by his spirit, drawing you and I to look to Jesus, not to ourselves. Praise God. Receiving believers. I'm talking about us receiving each other. Receiving believers while they are struggling and in process shows or demonstrates God's grace. Withholding that acceptance until people act like good Christians is bringing people back to the law, back to earning and striving and performance. Listen, demonstrating grace is a powerful, life-giving thing. Do you know that you're going to receive opportunities to demonstrate grace? And when is that? It's when someone who's a believer falls. It's when they fail in word or action Maybe they blow it. That's an opportunity to demonstrate grace. Not just preach and teach, but to demonstrate grace by saying, let's, brother, sister, let's get up and let's move on toward Jesus. I forgive you if you sinned against me. I forgive you. Christ forgives you. Let's go back to the cross. That's an opportunity to receive grace. And you know when it's most impactful to someone who's, fa who's struggling? When they fail and someone receives them. That's impactful. That it can be stronger than a, any sermon that you hear. And friends, there's going to be times where people are going to need to show grace to you and to me. Do you understand that? And the Bible says receive each other. Don't view each other after the flesh. View each other the way God does, as complete in Christ. Listen, I'll give you an example. I've been standing in this altar talking to people before who are new believers, and guess what came out of their mouth, and they're talking with me, and they're just saying how great the sermon was, and talking about life, a little F-bomb. Ooh, in front of the pastor. Little S-H, you know the rest. And what is, what, how should I re respond to that? 
I just, I just mostly ignore it. I'm looking at them as complete in Christ. And I'm trusting that God is going to work on their language. He's going to cleanse them by the water of the Spirit and the blood of Jesus as they continue to go forward in, in, in Him. I don't have to jump on them. Do you understand that? I believe in the work of Christ and His grace. I'm not saying, well, it doesn't matter how you talk. But I'm saying, I believe that Christ is going to work in them. Do you understand that? Girl gets saved, comes into the church, and she wants to be on the worship team, and she gets up on the worship team, and, and she's got a, she has a low-cut thing. Well, if she's on the worship team, then somebody probably needs to say something before, before the worship service starts, right? Because she's representing Christ. Well, let's say she's not on the worship team, and she just comes in. She's been in the church six months, and she's still dressing a little bit worldly. What do we do? Do we jump on her? Say, hey, girl, don't you know it just dresses down here and tops up here? Here's the standard. Or do we trust the Holy Spirit in her? Do we trust the work of grace that God is going to work in her? And yes, maybe there comes a time to say something. But if God calls you to say something, oh, make sure you're clothed with Christ. Make sure you're clothed with humility. Make sure you're not coming with a self-righteous attitude, but you're coming to undergird and to build her up and to say, I believe in Christ in you. Amen? Praise God. I want to talk about what happens when we fail to demonstrate grace to each other and instead we, we take people back to the law. You see, the law is a powerful thing and it can be used like a rod and a rod can be used to strike things and a rod can be used to, to pry things and the law has its use before we come to Christ but when we're under Christ, we're no longer under the law. We're under the shepherd. We're married to we're married to Christ so we can bring forth fruit to God. So we're going to look at a story about the lawgiver, Moses, who, who lived an incredible life of faith in God and who often interceded for the people who were rebellious, who were, who were grumbling, who were lusting, who were not believing God, who were coming against him. But we come to the end, near the end of his life and the end of the wilderness journeys of Israel. And we come to a place where there's a great failure in his life because of an attitude that he had toward the least of these. So in 1 Corinthians 10.4, it says that they, speaking of those Israelites, they all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. I'm going to talk about the two events where... Uh, God, the, the people of Israel had no water and they cried out for water. They complained, they grumbled, they, they had unbelief and God provided them water. You know the first time, it was at the early in their journeys, they had come through the Red Sea, they had received the Ten Commandments and now they're at Mount Horeb, but they have no water and they complain and they grumble. And it says in Numbers 28, it says, 20 verse 8, it says, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and gather, I'm sorry, I, I'm missing a verse here. Verse, Ezekiel 17, 6. This is the first time that God brings forth water from the rock. It says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Moses striking the rock with the rod, which was a type of the law, brought forth water 
This is a type of Christ bearing the punishment of the law for us on the cross. He was smitten for our transgressions to bring us life, to bring us living water. When Moses struck the rock, Jesus was that rock that followed him, followed all of Israel. When he struck it, it was a type of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? The law was fulfilled in Jesus. He struck the rock and what happened? Water came out, life came out, forgiveness came out. Did they deserve it? No. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They deserved judgment. Did we deserve Jesus to go to the cross for our sins? No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. The second time the people complained about their thirst was nearly 40 years later, near the end of their wilderness wanderings. And it was at a different rock, about 150 miles north at Kadesh. Many of the original people who complained the first time had died in the wilderness. You remember, he said, for 40 years, you're going to wander in the wilderness and you're going to die, but your children are going to go in. They're going to inherit the promised land. And so this is almost 40 years later. Most of that old generation had died off, had had funerals. They were mostly gone, but there was still some of them there. And I think they were the ones that began to grumble and complain when again they came to a place where they had no water. Numbers 20, verse 8. It says, take the rod. This is God speaking to Moses. You and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. This sounds, all sounds the same as the first time at Mount Horeb. But he says something different here. He says, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Listen, there were two million people approximately, 600,000 fighting men, women and, and then there were women and children, probably two million people. The first time God brought water out of the rock, it was for about the same amount of people, two million people. Imagine that. Now God says to Moses, take the rod in your hand, stand before them and let them see in, in your sight and I'm gonna have you speak to that rock. Different instructions than the first time. First time it was strike the rock, now it's speak to the rock. These people were rebellious and they were complaining. You know what they were trying to do? They were trying to manipulate God and Moses to give them water for their thirst. But God in his long suffering wanted to teach these people who were dying in the wilderness something wonderful about himself, something beautiful about the new covenant. He was gonna give them a picture of something coming that all these things that they went through were types and shadows of. He was gonna give them a picture of a coming new covenant of the grace of God. And he wanted Moses to show them this. Listen, Moses in his heart, I think, was done with these people, the older generation. But God in his mercy was saying, I still love these people. Even though they're not coming into the promised land, I want to teach them something. He wanted to show them that the rock that was once struck before, struck once, only needed to be spoken to by faith to bring forth the water of life. Look at verse nine. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Whoa, I don't think that was in what God said to say. 
Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me to sanctify or hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. Moses and Aaron, you were part of that group with just Joshua and Caleb, just the four of you going into the land of Canaan besides the young people under 20. But now that you've done this, Moses, you can't enter in. You can't lead these people in. You didn't set me apart in their eyes. You failed in something I was going to show these people. You failed to show them. You failed to show them something I wanted to show them. Listen, Moses in his frustration with the people lashed out at them in fleshly anger. He had borne their complaints and unbelief for over four decades and he was done with them. He was done with them. His mind was on the younger generation to bring them into the land of promise. But this great error dishonored the Lord and was an act of unbelief and rebellion on Moses' part. Remember what Moses said? He said, hear now, you rebels! But you know what God said to him? Numbers 27, 14. He said, for in the wilderness of Zin, that's exactly where this happened, during the strife of the congregation, when the people were grumbling against me and you, you rebelled against my commandment to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. He accused them of rebellion. God said, you were rebellious. Were the people rebellious? Yes. But Moses acted in the same spirit of rebellion toward them. And he didn't honor God. He didn't believe God. He didn't believe God could change these people by this lesson of grace that he was trying to show them. He didn't believe that, so he took the same rod which represents the law, and he struck the rock again. He said, these people don't need grace. They need the law. They need to be pride. They need to be struck. They need to be manipulated God says, you've missed something beautiful I wanted to show these people. Moses would see the land from a distance, but he wouldn't enter it. He'd be brought up to the mountain, and there he would die after he viewed the land. Listen, how many of us have failed just like Moses? We're frustrated with people we think they'll never change. We're done with them as Moses was with the old generation. We want to move on to other people. But God is saying, I want, to sh- I want you to show them the grace that comes from speaking to the rock. And that rock is Christ. There is water ready to flow from the rock that was slain from the foundation of the world, even for the rebels. We must avoid going back to striking the rock. When we take people back to the law, we are striking at the perfect sacrifice of Christ, saying, it's not enough. What Christ has done is not enough. These people need the rod of the law. How can I get my spouse to to move? How can I get them to change? Well, I'll just put the law on them. I'll I'll try to pry on them. I'll, I'll strike them with the law. I'll say, if you don't, I will. How can we get people in the church to change? You still have sinful habits. Oh, we'll just, we'll just pressure them. We'll make them feel guilty. We'll hit them with the law. We'll manipulate them. 
Well, guess what? You might, you might get some results. You might change them a little bit, but it'll be all external. It'll be all outside. The law can only change the external. Grace changes the heart. It changes the life. It changes the character. That's what we need to show each other and not be like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going back to the law. I'm going to prime and manipulate. I'm going to work this. The heart of God is, will you believe me that I can bring the change I want to bring? And if I don't change them, that's not your problem. That's not up to you. But you bring them to the rock. You bring them to the place where there's life. How oh, we've missed the heart of God. The law can never produce righteousness you say, well, look, Aaron, there were results. I mean, God still brought water out of the rock even though Moses disobeyed and he struck the rock. Yeah, God still, he was faithful to his people. He somewhat honored Moses even in spite of Moses' rebellion. But that was not the result God was looking for. You say, well, I've tried, I've tried with my spouse. I've tried to show them grace, but that doesn't work. I've tried with this person. I've tried with this unbeliever. It doesn't work, so I'm going to take the law to him. You might get some results, but it won't be the interchange. It won't be the life of Christ. It'll just be outward. Listen, our job is not to change people, but to receive them and point them to the rock that has the living water they need. I don't want to miss the mighty things God is going to do in difficult people through unbelief. I don't want to see people in this church that haven't changed and say, well, they're not going to change. I'm moving on. I'll maybe hit them with the law a little bit. No. I'm going to keep pointing them to Jesus Christ, the rock that's full of living water. God wants us to receive believers to bring him glory. You believe that? He wants us to receive each other to bring him glory. But what about unbelievers? What about people outside the kingdom? How should we treat them before they are saved? Do we say, look, clean up and then you can come in the church, get these things right, repent, get all these things right in your life, then you can come in? What did Jesus demonstrate for us? Let's look at a woman, and John Bailey talked about her last week, so this will be fresh in your minds. Let's talk about a woman, an outsider who Jesus received before she was converted. John 4, 9 and 10. We're going to talk a little bit about the woman at the well. Then, the, you know, Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. And when he came into Samaria, a place that the Jews didn't have interaction with these Samaritans because they were half-breeds in their mind. They were mixed. They were compromisers. But Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. He had an appointment with not only a Samaritan, but a woman, a female Samaritan, Jews didn't talk, male Jews did not talk to women. And so Jesus gets to this well and his disciples are hungry and they, just, they decide to go into town and buy some food while Jesus is alone at the well. And Jesus is alone at the well and this woman comes up to, to him at the well by herself and he says, hey, could you draw me some water? And she says, well, you, what do you have to draw with? You know, we can't use the same vessel. We're not the same people. She says, the well is deep, you have nothing to draw with. And he begins to speak to her. He begins to converse with her. And look what it says in verse 9. It says, the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, 
being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I believe Jesus had to wait for his disciples to go to town to speak with this woman because if they were there, they wouldn't have let this conversation happen. They would have been in the way of this mission Jesus had to this woman. Are you and I with Jesus or does he have to do stuff when we're not around? Does he have to wait to go on mission until we're out of the way? So she's thinking, why are you talking to me? Why aren't you ignoring me like everyone else? Why aren't you avoiding me? Jesus answered verse 10 and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me to drink, listen, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What, did, what was God trying to show these Israelites? He was trying to show them that by speaking to the rock, water would come out. He was trying to give them a new covenant picture that Christ is the rock and we don't have to manipulate Christ. We don't have to strike him. He's been struck once for all. He's been crucified once for the sins of many. Now we speak to him. We speak to him. We bring him our requests. We say, oh, Lord, my son, he can't get home for Christmas. The army, they're a bunch of boneheads. They, 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 they're not letting him come home. I'm going to prayer. She's speaking to the rock and guess what? Water comes out of the rock. Answer comes out of the rock. Life comes out of the rock. That's what Jesus was trying to show them back in Numbers. There's a new covenant coming and it's gonna be as simple as speaking to the rock and listening to the rock. You see what she said? Or he said, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, that's speaking. You would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. You would have asked the living rock and he would have given you living water. Why, because you're such a good person? No, we'll see, that's not true. Hallelujah, verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I don't wanna keep making this trip every day to the well. She's still thinking about physical water. She's still thinking about her material needs. But Jesus is referring to something much greater, spiritual water, which heals and gives life to every part of the thirsty soul. Look what happens next. Jesus said to her, verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you truly or spoke truly. Whoa, now Jesus is getting personal. Now Jesus is getting deep. Now Jesus is showing that he's the son of God, that he sees her whole life and her whole life story. Right? And, she's, and she says, I know about your past. I know about the skeletons in your closet. I know about all your emotional and relational baggage. I know about the five husbands and marriages that didn't work out. I know you. I know you. And I know that the man you're living with now is not your husband. You're living in sexual sin. I know you. And it says, it says that she said, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I'll bet you there's something in her that was kind of like, whoa. He knows my life. Like she's waiting for maybe a hammer to fall. Right? But listen, he continues to speak to her. 
he continues to speak to her. He doesn't withdraw in condemnation and disgust, but he continues pouring into her. He begins talking to her about true worship. He's speaking to her about deep things of God. Talk about the least of these. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman, and she has a very sinful past and present. Yet he came to bring her to this place of asking him for water. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that's talking to you, you would have asked him. You would have spoken to the rock and he would have given you living water. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. He goes on and speaks to her about true worship. And then in verse 25, it says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And at that point, his disciples came. Remember at the beginning, we talked about in Luke, it says they, an argument started. Who would be the greatest? Well, now it says that they see him talking to this woman and it says the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. What do you do? I mean, they marveled. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with, with her? Well, they had the thoughts. Jesus knew they had the thoughts, but they were too afraid to say him. Right? They had all these negative thoughts. Why are you talking to a woman? They didn't even know she was a Samaritan. They didn't even know about her sinful past. And they already had walls coming up. Why are you talking to this woman? That's why Jesus couldn't have done this ministry to this woman without them gone. Because of their wrong thinking and their prejudices. Then the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? It says, then they went out of the city and they came to him. She's the first evangelist. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a sinful woman with a sinful past and a sinful present. And now Jesus has spoken to her and received her to himself and said, I know all about your past and I'm not rejecting you. And I want to give you living water. I want to give you living water. And because he didn't condemn her and because he loved her by receiving her, she runs back to her hometown and she tells all these people who knew that she was had, about her past, come and see a man that told me everything about me. Yet he didn't reject me. He didn't reject me. Come, I think it's the Christ. And they came to Jesus. The whole city came to Jesus. Man, this is a revival. This is what the world needs today. It needs the church to come to the people who are broken, who have a riddled past of sin, who have a present full of sin, and to say, I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to call you to come and to speak to the one who will give you living water just by asking him. Praise God. John four thirty five, Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. Jesus is saying, you don't even realize that there's people out there that are hurting, that are hungry, that if they knew the gift of God, they would come and ask for water. They would run for it. 
they would come to it. John 4, 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me everything I ever did. He knew me, yet he didn't reject me. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So these other Samaritans come to Jesus. They got sinful lives too. And Jesus speaks to them. And as he's speaking to them, they say, would you stay longer? Would you stay longer? We want to hear what you're saying. Jesus comes to the sinner and he receives them to himself. He did this with Zacchaeus too. Remember the the short man, the tax collector, couldn't see Jesus, climbed a tree, hated by his home countrymen. He just wanted to get a look at Jesus, but Jesus had a plan to receive him. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I must eat with you today in your house. Do you see that? He welcomes Zacchaeus. He receives Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus said, the people grumbled. They said, oh, look, he's receiving sinners. That's what the church should do. The church should have arms wide open to sinners, believing that the grace and truth of Jesus Christ is what will change them. What changed the woman at the well? It was the living water. You see, it was the living water that did more than just quench her spiritual thirst. It washed her past. It took all those skeletons in the closet and it took them down the river away from her. It healed her shame. It delivered her from baggage. It washed her and made her new. See, the law can't do that. Going to people and saying, you need to change. You, oh, oh, I'm better than you. You, you. You smell. That doesn't change people. It drives people away. But the receiving heart of Jesus Christ brings people in. It receives them. It welcomes them. It has faith that, look, all my, all my job is as a Christian is to point you to this rock, get you talking to this rock, get you talking to him. And when you begin talking to him and begin to say, would you give me this living water? Then that living water comes and changes and fills everything. It heals broken pasts. It heals broken marriages. It heals broken relationships between son and father and daughter and mother. It heals. That's what the living water of Christ does. That's what we're inviting people to. Hallelujah. Then they said to the woman, the people, the Samaritans, now we believe not just because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Praise God. Worship team, if you come back up. I want to I encourage you today that if you feel like you're nothing without Jesus, you're great in his eyes. And he wants to build you up and increase your confidence in him. He wants to strengthen you. You're not insignificant. You're part of the body of Christ. And the ones he can use are the ones who feel like they can't be used. The ones who are confident in themselves have to come down before they're lifted up to service. And I want to speak to some of you here today who have, like Moses, just been like, I'm done with those people. I'm done with those people. And you've allowed an anger, a, a bitterness, an unforgiving spirit to take root in you. And Jesus is calling you today to himself to say, speak to me about this. 
Speak to me about this thing that won't let you enter in to the promises I have for you, into the glory I have for you. Moses was shut out by one failure. Guess what? We're in the new covenant. Thank God that we've failed many times and God says, keep coming back to me. Keep coming back to the rock that's higher than you. Keep coming back and ask him for water to soften your heart. Ask him for water to dislodge the root of bitterness and take it out and take it down the stream and to bring life to you. Ask him. There's not an option for us to shut our hearts off from people and say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. When there's a rock that has living water in it. You can't heal that. You can't heal them. You can't heal the relationship. But you can ask God to heal your heart. And you can ask God to give you a heart that they come to Christ who can heal them. See, the disciples weren't ready for this message. They weren't ready for it. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? It's going to cost you humbling yourself. It's going to cost you coming to Jesus on his terms and saying, Lord, take away this hardness in me. I want to show people Jesus. I want to show people your amazing grace and get people to call upon you. Whether it's in the church or it's out of the church. Jesus, give me your heart so I can see the fields that are white for harvest, so I can be one to speak your message of living water so people come running to you by my testimony. I invite you to come forward if the Lord has spoken to you. I invite you to come to this altar and to pray. And I'll pray for you. I'll pray with you. I'm not speaking this in judgment to you. The Lord's not speaking this in condemnation to you. He's speaking this to us because he loves us. And he doesn't want hardness in our hearts. He doesn't want us acting like Moses, prying people, hitting people with the law, threatening, saying, if you don't, I will. He wants us to have his heart in this hour. Ask him. Let's speak to the rock. Come and speak to the rock. Maybe you don't have the right heart of God toward unbelievers or people in your family and it's Christmas and you're going to see them. Maybe your heart is not right. You know it's hard. Come, come, come and speak to the rock who brings living water that changes everything. It changes everything. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.